21st century and an extended special effects scene showing a spaceship docking with the space station to the blue band walls. Humans are seen, but words are hardly spoken. And Ebert explains it this way. He said the film did not provide the clear narrative and easy entertainment cues the audience expected. The closing sequences where the astronaut inexplicably finding himself in a bedroom somewhere beyond Jupiter were baffling. The overnight problem of judgment was that Kubrick had become derailed, that in his obsession with effects and set pieces, he had failed to make a movie. What he had actually done was make a philosophical statement about man's place in the universe, using images as those before him had used words, music, or prayer. And he had made it in a way that invited us to contemplate, not to experience it vicariously as entertainment, as we might in a good conventional science fiction film, but to stand outside it as a philosopher might and think about it. So that was the beginning, and uh, that would cause Rock Hudson to storm out the theater. And it's Stanley Kaufman writing in the new Republic called a film that is so dull, it even dulls our interest in the technical ingenuity for the sake of which Kubrick has allowed it to become dull. Well, I think Ebert was exactly right, though. Most movies give us a sense that we are right there, witnessing the events as they happen, like a fly on the wall. But not so in, in 2001. Rather than place us, rather than place us in the story, Kubrick creates a movie about life, the universe, and, and everything. If I can steal from Douglas Adams, and he places us outside it so that we can contemplate it almost philosophically, the way that you can't appreciate the value or significance of experience you're living through until you've passed it and you can step outside it and kind of look back on it with a fresh set of eyes. So Kubrick gives us this opportunity to ask us who we are. This morning we start uh, our, our first sermon series of the fall, and we're going to be taking a trip to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ as told by a man named John. And there, there are four of these uh, gospels in our Bible. Each one has its own beginning and its own emphases. But it strikes me that the beginning of John's book is sort of the 2001 A Space Odyssey of, of gospel beginning. He instantly catches us off guard by taking us entirely outside known history and inviting us to contemplate the meaning of life and everything we know through the lens of a person, Jesus. Now, I, I should say something more about what we mean by, by a gospel. Christians use this phrase, gospel, in, in two different ways, but they're, they're related. I oftentimes hear the Christians mix these up. Uh, but first of all, we, we use as Christians the word gospel to refer to the central teaching of Christianity. The term gospel means good news. And for Christians, the good news is that we can be united with God forever. Why that is good news? Why is good news we can be united with God forever only makes sense if we understand certain bad news. Namely, the Bible teaches us that we are rebels. It teaches us that our rebellion alienates us from a perfect God. 
and that the just penalty for our crimes is an infinitely severe one, the eternity in hell. And then in light of that, the idea that it's possible to be reunited with the God who made us to spend an eternity in his glorious presence at peace with him is tremendously good news. I'll say more about the content of that good news in a little bit. But there's another way that we use the word gospel as Christians. Uh, we use it to refer to a type of literature, a genre of literature, that records certain biographical details of the life of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. We call it a gospel because these works include the salient bits of Jesus' life that form the basis of the good news about how we can be restored to a right relationship with God. They are historical works, they're biographical works, but they're not histories or biographies as we normally think of them. They, they're not dry, dispassionate, chronological narratives. Rather, they are carefully arranged collections of teachings and narrative accounts designed to draw the reader to the person of Jesus. To be moved by him, and even to fall in love with him. And John, the author of this particular gospel, by no means hides this fact. He writes at the end of his book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So with that in mind, we, we, we hit at the opening of this book for five weeks, uh, what has been called the prologue to John's Gospel. My hope is that as we go through it, you will find this Jesus extraordinarily fascinating, extraordinarily beautiful. And I hope that with John, that you will believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and so of life. And if you see these things already, it's my hope that you will see them and feel them more deeply, and that your love for this person grows and grows. So we're going to be looking at the first five verses this morning. And fittingly, this beginning starts with three very pregnant words in the beginning. In this beginning, John wants us to see Jesus as the eternal, life-giving creator. A picture he paints really through the use of three key words. Word, light, and life. And roughly that will be our, our outline to how we can break down this passage. Just let's look at how John uses these three key Word, life, and life. Well, verse 1 uh, introduces us to the Word. It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, and we had, had Emily read from, from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1 through 2, 3 this morning, uh, for this very reason, because this phrase intentionally harkens back to the very first book of the Bible. There, the first words are the same. In the beginning, Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens. He created the earth. 
And God is painted as speaking the creation into existence in an orderly fashion. Speaking. In the beginning was the Word. Throughout the Old Testament, God is presented as the speaking God. He reveals himself to his preeminent creation, human beings, through spoken words. At times he speaks rather directly to man. Other times he speaks indirectly through intermediaries like angels and prophets. But he is a communicating God. He reveals his will. He reveals his character. He reveals his attributes by his words. And so God speaks creation into existence. When he gives the Ten Commandments, which is the, the series that we most recently finished, the Bible says that God spoke all these words. And in Hebrew, they are known as the Ten Words. Very often when a prophet was giving a message, a stock phrase is used in Scripture, that the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and the word of the Lord came to this prophet, and the word of the Lord came to that prophet. When we think of the word, word, we think of a series of characters that come together to have a, a single distinct meaning, like C-A-T makes cat soft, four-legged animal that has convinced human beings that loves them despite outward displays of hostility and all that. These things Apathy. But for the writers of the Bible, the word word, whether Greek lagos or dabar in Hebrew, had a broader meaning than a series of characters. It could be an account, an idea, or very often simply a message. And so when the word of the Lord came to, say, Jonah, son of Amittai, in the book of Jonah, it isn't a single lexeme that came to uh, Jonah. It's not a single dictionary entry. It's an entire message that he is commanded to preach to the residents of ancient Nineveh. So, a first century Jewish audience reading John's Gospel, uh, in that context, a, 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 such a Jew would be instantly drawn to creation and the prophets and all the accounts of a communicating God. And here, John says, this word, this self-expression of Yahweh, was somehow distinguishable. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So, this idea of the word, which throughout the Old Testament is the, the revelation of God's character, his attributes, and his nature, this terminology is stamped on the person of Jesus, and he is distinguished in a way by saying he is with God in the beginning. And then John drops a bomb on them. Not only was the word with God, but the word was God. And the meaning here is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward and it's really, really profound. The one that John calls the Word 
was with God in the beginning of things and also was God. He is both unique from God and he is God. Now this is a major building block of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which is that there is only one God, one divine being, but this one divine being is shared by three divine persons. And so the Father and the Son and the Spirit, as we read this morning, are each rightly called God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. They are identifiable, they are distinguishable, and yet harmoniously, eternally one. Now some Christians wave their hand and say, you know, it's, it's a mystery. We just, we just can't understand that. And, and there's some truth to that in as much as I wouldn't expect to be able to get my finite, puny, stupid head around the notion of what God's infinite existence is like. I don't expect that I should be capable of doing that. And so I am more than willing to accept some mystery around God's eternal being. But it's not a mystery in the sense that we can say nothing about it, or that it is entirely unintelligible. Because John clearly has said something intelligible and meaningful about it. And in a side, some Christians are a little too flippant with the language. I want to I want to pause here, just kind of step aside from the immediate text to, to deal with a, a, a pernicious doctrine that shows up across the street now and then, and also at your door, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is beside my point; it's beside John's immediate point, but it but it bears some discussion because they will come to your door and they'll, they'll set up shop at 21st and you put on campus and they'll set up shop at Playhouse Square and, and at the West Side Market and I, I, I want you to have an answer. I don't want you to feel there's no response. So the Jehovah's Witnesses will show up and they'll show, show you that in their Bible it says that the word was a God. So they have their own Bible, their own translation. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was a God, and the lowercase g. And they may tell you that your Bible is translated incorrectly or corrupt. And if they're really in the know, they may tell you that in Greek, the word the is not there. So it's not talking about the God. It's talking about a God. And to that, I'll just say they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, that's just not how ancient Greek works. And few, if any, scholars of Koine Greek, whether atheists or Christians, secular or religious, would agree with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in what they claim that this verse really says. They just don't know what they're talking about. But since you're not likely an expert in Greek, it's probably not worth debating them on that point. There are probably more fruitful paths to the gospel when they come to your door. But I don't want you to be confused by this myth that they peddle and think that there aren't answers 
to the things that they have been trained and prepared and practiced to say when they come to your door. There are plenty of very easy and obvious answers to fill down. Trust me. Look back to the text. It's really a, it's a shocking opening. It, it catches you off guard because we, we might expect, you know, uh, Mark, when he begins his gospel, uh, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and just launches into some stories about what Jesus did. Uh, Luke launches into, he gives a brief preface and says, hey, I've researched this stuff, I've looked into it, and now I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff Jesus did. And Matthew, he, he starts off with a, a genealogy, gives you Jesus' family tree, and then just, hey, let me tell you a bunch of stuff Jesus did. And John, John does something different. He gives us ontology. In the beginning was the Word. He gives us geography. The Word was with God. And he gives you identity. He says the Word was God. And, and as if to say, yes, you really read that right, John reinforces it. He was with God in the beginning. Or maybe more literally, this one, this one I just said, this one I was just talking about, this one who I said was God, he was in the beginning with God. He's given us philosophy. He's giving us a, a sense of awe and wonder as to who this Jesus is. The author of the book of Hebrews makes a similar point as John. John is describing Jesus as the Word and identifies the Word as God. And so, in that way, he suggests that Jesus is the very self-expression of God. And the author of Hebrews writes, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So there we have Jesus as the very representation of God's communication. Sort of God's final and most perfect communication of himself to this world is the Son, is the Word, taking on human form and living among us. So that's the word. It is the, the very self-expression of God. But verse 3 adds a new idea. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. And we know in Genesis chapter 1 that, that God is showing, that God is shown to be speaking the creation into existence. Proverbs 33, 6 makes this point even more explicit. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. So God made the universe by or through his word. And John says all things were made through him. That is, the word. And that makes two important claims about Jesus as the word. First, it claims that Jesus is the creative agent of the universe. There's some sort of divine hierarchy that, that isn't fully fleshed out for us, but God is making everything, but he's doing it through the divine word. 
And Jesus, or John says that everything that's been made was made through the Word, through Jesus. So as the maker then, Jesus is the rightful owner and master of this universe. Now this is a point that gets built on a little more further along in the prologue and throughout John's Gospel. But as the maker of the universe, Jesus has a legitimate claim over it. The second point that John is making through that line is a little bit more subtle, but he's saying that out him was not anything made that was made. It is to say that if something were made, Jesus made it. Period. Something cannot be its own cause. That would be a, a self-contradiction. Or that would be a contradiction. So presumably, Jesus is uncaused. Jesus has no cause. He is eternal. And this can probably be inferred from the fact that the word is identified as God. But John adds some depth here. So Jesus is the self-expression of God, and he's also the eternally uncreated creator. So there's the word. John moves on in verse 4. He says, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. This is a very profound statement and, and maybe uh, a little bit obtuse at first. What, what does it mean that in the word was life and the life was the light of men? First of all, in John's Gospel, life is going to become a, a, a huge theme. And, and there is a, a distinguishing mark between those who, are, who, who have life and those who don't have life. Those who are dead and those who are alive. And, and John is at pains to show that Jesus was at pains to explain to people that there is a type of living that is not life. There is a type of living that is, in effect, death itself. It's a type of living that is separation from our Creator. A separation from what we were made to be, who we were made to be. And, and so, a, a life that is wholly without life. Jesus, John says, is the one in whom there was life. Hold that thought for a moment, because I think there's a second thing that John is trying to establish here. In light of what he has already said in these first verses, it's impossible to not tie this back to creation. That God didn't just speak things into existence, but he spoke life into existence. 
And so Jesus wasn't just the one through whom things came into being, but through whom they took their first breath and came alive. He is the one who has given the power and authority over life and death by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the, the side of the Father. He is the one through whom we must access spiritual life, a life apart from death, a life reconnected to the Heavenly Father. He said that the good news is that we can be brought back into relationship with God and that that is somehow mediated through this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and it's because he died to pay the penalty for our transgression, to pay the penalty for our rebellion. He raises to new life. And so he is free to give life to all who would come to him. And so he becomes, as, as he says in his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so this Jesus is the self-expression of God, the eternally uncreated, life-giving creator. But then John introduces this idea of light. He says the light was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When John says the light was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, it is impossible again to not see us going back in our minds to creation. Because that opening creative act by God in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. Why? Because verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness. If you've been in a dark room, if you've ever been in a, a really, really dark room, we did this, um, I, I had a physics instructor in high school who really, I, I think had a calling as a, uh, perverse socio-cultural scientist. I mean, uh, he liked to experiment with people's minds. And so if we were really well behaved for a long enough period of time, he would allow us to have a dark day. And, and dark day was exactly what you thought it was. Uh, we would turn out all the lights. We would prepare in advance uh, aluminum foil blocks for every possible 
place that light could creep into the room. The tiniest crack around a door or a window, everything was blocked out by aluminum foil. So there was not even one hint of light that could enter the room. And there was like a different level of dark. Uh, and maybe ancient people were more familiar with this, but this is a different level of dark. I mean, it's close to other darks you've seen, but it feels deeper. There's no light anywhere. And then, of course, you know, teenagers, you're going to be teenagers, and they're going to do stupid stuff in the dark. Um, but it, it was crazy how dark it was. And if somebody were to shine a light, if somebody were to turn on a, a flashlight or something like that, What's amazing is how, no matter how deep that darkness was and, and how uh, profoundly absent of my normal reality it felt, that light cut through the darkness and wherever it touched, the darkness dissipated and was destroyed. The darkness, no matter how dark that room was, it could not swallow any light that came into it. So the only remedy was to prevent any light from getting into it. And that is sort of the picture that we're given of Jesus. Light for John, as evidence for, for us today, was, was very much a, a spiritual, religious term, uh, enlightenment, and, and, and being woken up, and, and being aware of things. But more so, Darkness is portrayed by John as a state of being absent from God. It is the state of sin reigning, rebellion reigning in our hearts, and it is the, the normal state that most human beings are in. And it's a state that is remedied when we encounter Jesus Christ. When we see him for who he is and accept him for who he is, it's like a penetrating military-grade flashlight shining through a room that is entirely dark. It will, like the noonday sun, illuminate a spot and make it as clear as day. And so elsewhere, whatever, it, 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 the, the scriptures say whatever is light is, is revealed. Whatever is hit by light becomes light. Light and darkness aren't just opposites, but, but darkness is the absence of light. And so these were more than just polar opposites for John. And so when John says the darkness has not overcome it, there's a little bit of a wordplay here. Something that, if you read John's Gospel, and I hope that you do, if you read John's Gospel, you notice that John loves wordplay. He loves using words that can mean two or three different things, and, and, and both of them play good. He also loves instances where Jesus is having confusing conversations with people, and what Jesus is saying is just sort of right over the heads of the people he's talking to in confusion incurs. And John loves those stories about Jesus because I think they, they point us to the fact that we often miss what's right in front of us. 
And so you'll see this distinction if you look at the John 1, 5 in different translations. Some will say the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, others will say that the darkness did not understand it or the darkness did not master it. And, and the reason is because this, this word, it's actually not too dissimilar to a word we have in English, uh, it sort of means something like grasp. And it came to have you know, metaphorical terms, just like the word grasp has in English, that you can grasp something, it means you understand it, you comprehend it, you get it. It can also mean that you seized something and you owned it and, and dominated it. Grasp the prize, grasp the trophy. And both of those are kind of in play in the Greek word as well. And, and there's a sense that both are, are true. John is playing off this sort of double meaning because both are true. The darkness doesn't get Jesus. Doesn't understand. Doesn't see the word for who he is. It doesn't make sense to them. It's confusing. When the light hasn't shined on it, it's, it's imagining... If you've lived in dark your entire life, whether whether born blind or in some sort of uh, perverse horror movie, you've been bound in a dark box your entire life, and you would have, if something were to happen, a surgical procedure that you could see again for the first time, imagine what the world would be like. You wouldn't be able to comprehend what you were seeing. So it is for those who are in darkness. Darkness does not grasp the light. But the darkness for John, like I said, was also this the forces of evil that would desire to swallow up all that is God-honoring and God-loving. And just as a light in a dark room cannot imagine the darkness creeping over and overtaking, the light doesn't work that way, so in the same way, the light of Jesus will conquer anything on which it shines. And Jesus, John says, is the light of men. If you want to understand God, if you want to know what he is like, if you want to see him for who he is, if you want to understand what your place in the universe is, alongside this God, then you must come to the light. Because nothing is seen in darkness, but everything that is seen is seen in the light. And so we must see it through the lens of Jesus. So John opens with these three big, deep words. Word, life, Light, I barely scratched the surface on it. But he wants us to see, he wants us to be intrigued by this Jesus who is the very self-expression of God, the eternally uncreated, light-giving, life-giving creator of the world. And so we all can be found in worship. And we will dig further in all those things in the next Let's pray.
Father, 